Why don't y'all stay standing with me and turn to Matthew chapter 13. That'll be on page 536 in the Bibles that are right in front of you. Um, If you don't have one of your own, we would love for you to take that one home with you. As we've said in the past few weeks, as we've been starting to go through the gospel of Matthew, um, all I'm going to do up here in the brief time that I have is I'm going to try to point your eyes to what God says in his word, explain what that means, call us to live like it's true, and then I'm going to pray and ask that God's spirit would work that inside of us, and I'm going to get out of your way. So what I want to do is I, I want to start off Matthew chapter 13, um, and we're going to go through chapter 14, verse 12. So here's what I'll do. I'm going to sum up some parts because I'm going to get back to it. Um, And then I'm going to read some parts. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse uh, 1 through 3, it reads like this. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat, sat down while the crowd stood on the shore. But then he told them many things in parables, saying, consider the sower who went out to sow. And here's what he'll do. This whole chapter uh, is, one of, is uh, one of the five discourses. There's five times in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus takes a break from the action, healing, and he just sits down and he talks and wants to make sure that you get it. And this one is full of parables. So he's just going to tell story after story after story after story. And there's a lot of good to be found in spending weeks at a time trying to see, all right, what this story means, what this one means, what this one means, what we're going to do is we're going to take it all as a whole and say, what's he trying to get across? Well, he starts off and he tells a story of this sower. This guy goes out, spreads seed, and the seed falls on four different kinds of soils. One falls on this fine soil, but then birds come and scoop it up and it's gone. One falls on rocky soil. And it seems like it springs up fine, but it turns out that there's not really a root, so it dies off. That the third one falls amongst thorny soil, and it grows up, but then it gets choked out. And the fourth one falls along good soil, and it sprouts up. After he says this, the disciples look at him and say, what are you talking about? Why are you saying it like this? He'll go on to explain why, but here's what he does. He gives this meaning, and what he says is this. Hey, when God's word goes out, he's like, the seed is God's word. Soil is the hearts of the crowds there that he's trying to talk to. There's some who who the word comes, and Satan immediately comes and takes it. That there is demonic opposition to God's word trying to go out, and he says that's real. Then he says there's some that comes up, and it looks like they're rejoicing in it all, but then hard times take place, and trials test the authenticity of your faith, and that one's choked out. And then he says that there's some that's sown on uh, 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 thorns. Thorns are just these uh, weeds, and he'll call them the cares and concerns of their life that you may hear the word today, but in your mind, your, your heart is distracted by the things that you really love. And what he's saying is those things can choke out the effectiveness of God's word. But then he says, 
there's some seed that falls on good soil. And it produces a crop. And here's what I love. The fruitfulness makes up for more than the failures. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give them a bunch of parables. And I've tried to make it obvious uh, uh, about what he talks about. So it should be bolded and highlighted in red. And so I'm going to read verse 24 to 53. And it says this. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed seeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and them in bundles to burn them. But collect the wheat in my barn. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it was all leaven. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable. So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then there's a scene change. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, the one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather them from his kingdom. All who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness... They will throw them into the blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears, ears, listen. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes out and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will go out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They answered him, yes. 
Therefore, he said, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. And then this story ends in a weird way. He goes back home and he's rejected by the people that saw him grow up. And then his cousin, John the Baptist, the forerunner of God's kingdom, is killed frivolously. And that's how this section ends. But I think if the Lord will grant us ears to hear, there's going to be uh, something that has the capacity to change how you and I relate to what God does in this world. So let's pray and ask for God's grace. Heavenly Father, we pray um, that you would give us ears to hear. Father, you can speak, uh, but if we're spiritually deaf, your words do us no good, Father. You can show us yourself, but if we're blind, your grace, your graciousness in revealing yourself does us no good. So what we ask is that today you would open our eyes, open our ears, give us hearts to hear and understand all that you have to say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? Uh, disappointment is a powerful thing. Disappointment is a powerful thing because it shapes how you and I interact with the world that is around us. It sets the stage for our interactions, our motivations, our ability to persevere in hard times. What psychologists have found out is this. Um, The joy from anticipating a pleasure is often greater than or at least equal to experiencing that pleasure. So there's a certain joy that you got as a kid uh, waiting for Christmas that when you actually opened up your gifts, it's not that they weren't great. It was just that you found that in some ways the anticipation was better than the actual experience. We find this all the time with movies, right? You, you wait for one to come, and then when it comes, it's not all that you hoped it, it, it would be. We find it with meals, right? You wait all year for this meal to come, and it's good, but it's just not what you thought it would be. This year in our church, we've had, uh, or we will have by, uh, by the time y'all get married, Tim, Uh, they'll be our 13th wedding in the church this year. And so what I found, premarital counseling is essentially, hear this, don't hear it wrongly, uh, preparing people for disappointment. Listen, marriage is great. It is wonderful. However, what you'll find is every couple has certain expectations of it that marriage just doesn't give. The joy of anticipation is often greater than the actual experience of it. When your expectations supersede or don't line up with your experiences, do you know what you have? Disappointment. And the question is, how do you deal with disappointment. 
everybody does it. And when it comes, you're either going to fight or flight. People fly from it in two ways. Psychologists will say this. There is nothing people try to avoid more in life than disappointment. Disappointment is actually a good thing. Because what it does is it leads you and I to the sadness that we feel. And when sadness is embraced, rather than cause us to forget, it causes us to remember what we've hoped for. And disappointment is a gift from God that's supposed to make you and I realign our thoughts, our hopes, our expectations. However, we fear that more than anything else. And here's how it works out. If you lean more towards being an idealist, instead of embracing a disappointment, do you know what you'll embrace? Anger. When things don't work out like you hoped that they would, when people don't put their cell phones on silent, <laughs> right? <laughs> what you'll do, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just playing. I'm really, I'm just playing. I'm not an idealist. I'm a realist. I'll get to how I respond. If you're an idealist, what takes place is that when things don't line up the way that you hoped that they would, you won't embrace disappointment. You'll embrace anger. And you'll be mad at the events or the people that you feel like caused it. And what you'll do is you'll hold on to, no, this is the way that things should be, instead of embracing Maybe the world that we live in is a broken one, and I'm disappointed. If you're a realist like me, uh, then instead of embracing anger, do you know what you'll embrace? Apathy. And it'll be not this is the way that things should be. What we'll do is we'll run from disappointment and act like the things that went wrong aren't that big of a deal say, ah, oh, it's okay. I really didn't expect much. And what you'll do is you'll have people that don't embrace the disappointment. And hear this, if you find yourself in a relationship with somebody and you don't embrace the reality of the disappointment that it brings, you're never going to grow to be able to trust them. You walk with Jesus long enough and do you know what you'll find? Do you know what you'll experience? Disappointment. Do you know Why? Because there's, the Bible is full of promises, and we expect them to take place in a certain way, and often they don't take place in the way that we want to. It's not that it's bad or wrong, it's just that it's different. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and ordered a Coke, and they bring you out a sweet tea? It's not that you don't like sweet tea. It's that, no, no, I was expecting the fizz and the bubbles and the caffeine and this is not that we come to God's word and hear the things that he says he's promised to deliver he says we're more than conquerors he's talked about he's a healer and how he's going to bring his kingdom here on earth and do you know what we experience sickness sadness failing being conquered and it either causes you and I to get angry at him or the people that surround him or us, or it causes us to get apathetic in our engagement with him. There's a Chicago rapper named Saba, came out with a 
album about a year and a half ago where it's this concept and he reflects on really the meaningless death of his cousin. His cousin was killed over a jacket. And so in one of the first songs there, he's just got these words where he says this, um, I'm not mad at God, I just can't get out of bed. My best friend's obituary really hang on the wall by the dresser. I'm trying to see it a life lesson. There's no time for mourning in my schedule. I seem to write less calligraphy. And all he talks about is he's more of a realist. And what he'll say is, I'm not mad at God, the God who created things and promised to protect, and my cousin is murdered meaninglessly. And what he'll say is, I'm not mad at him. But it's just hard for me to move on. And what he says, no, no, I don't have any time to mourn. I've just got to keep on writing. Do you know what that is? That's somebody running away from disappointment. So what do we do when God disappoints us? We've got to run right to him. Because as we run to him, we're going to see something um, uh, that will change us. When it comes to disappointment with the Lord, we can either change him, change the way that he does things, or we can change us. And as we've talked last week, Jesus is stubborn. He's unchangeable. He doesn't change. You and I are a little more flexible and malleable, and I want you to know that the joy that you want to experience is on the other side of you changing your expectations. And I hope that I can show you that here in this text. So here's the main point that I want to leave you with, and that's this. Hear this. God's kingdom is nothing like you expect. And that's because it's better than you can imagine. God's kingdom, the way that he'll do things here on this earth, is going to be nothing like you expect, but that's a good thing because it's better than you can imagine. Before we get to what he says, we have to embrace how he says it. Jesus starts off, and what he does is he speaks in these parables. Because he wants you and I to know where to see this look. The casual observer of Christianity, hear this, will always be an outsider. The casual churchgoer, church uh, tender, the person who does not give Jesus all of their life but casually stands on the outside trying to peer in and try to make sense of it all will never make sense of it all. Have you ever been on the outside of an inside joke? You come across, you hear somebody tell the whole story. Everybody laughs except for you. And you say, what's so funny? And they repeat the punchline and everybody laughs and you're still on the outside. And they say, oh, well, you had to be there. It's not that they weren't clear. It's not that they couldn't speak well. It's not that they didn't relay all of the facts. 
It's just that you are an outsider, and in order to get that joy, you had to be an insider and share the same experiences. Hear this. That's what Jesus is doing right here, the reason why he speaks in parables. Look here at verse uh, 1, 1 through 3. Verse 3 says this, then he told them many things in parables. Verse 34, it says this, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without parables. Verse 10, it says this, then the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking like this? And he's going to go on and say this, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, for it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. What Jesus is trying to do right here is he's trying to say, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is a thing, there is a such thing as insiders and outsiders. And so the reason why he's speaking in parables is because a parable is kind of like an inside joke. It's kind of like a subtweet. It doesn't make any sense unless you know the context. Verse 13, it goes on, right? Why does he do this? Uh, That is why I speak to them in parables because Looking, they do not see, and hearing, they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but not perceive, for this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear, or hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn back. And I would heal them. What he does right here is he paints this picture of outsiders and insiders. The first parable that he's going to use is this. The parable of the sowers like we talked about, right? God's word's going to go out. And although there's four different types of soils, there's only two different types of responses. Either God's word fails to achieve the purpose that it went out to, or it succeeds and it makes this person fruitful. Jesus is only quoting Isaiah's prophecy to say, listen, there is a such thing as somebody on the outside and somebody on the inside. In our world, we don't like to say that. We don't like to embrace the reality that at the end of the day, everybody's destiny is going to be split right down the middle. As Jesus tells these eight parables, do you know what he starts and he ends with? Parables of judgment. That at the end of the day, there is going to be this future judgment through which God judges the world. But here's the good news. As Jesus ends this off and talks about that there are only two destinies for people, he's not saying it in order to keep folks out. He's saying it reminding them 
that he came to reveal, to open up the eyes of the blind, to open the ears of those that can't hear. He came to make sure that people really understood him. Okay, I think the best way I can describe it is like this. When we think of the term outsider and insider and that a prophecy goes on, that there's going to be two types of folks in the world, immediately we get frustrated because we say, what about the folks that are on the outside? They're not going to get a chance to hear. As Jesus brings this up, the reason why he's talking is because he's saying it's not like the line from outsider to insider can't be crossed. June 2015, um, Rachel Dolezal, y'all, y'all remember that name. Um, she was a white woman that paraded around as if she was black. Um, and she got super successful, the president of the NAACP where she was. Um, and then when it came out that she was white, do you know what you had? Uh, a bunch of folks on black Twitter saying, wait, you were an outsider and you tried to come in and you, you couldn't come in. And what they did, just in real, like, mean ways, said, all right, here's a test. If you really were an insider, then on what day was Craig fired? Monday, Friday, or his day off? <laughs> if you were really an insider, what type of precipitation can't Missy stand? <laughs> the rain sleep. So all of this stuff, as, as Jesus brings this up, the reason why he brings all of this up is he says this. Look, 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 look. I'm giving an invitation for outsiders to become insiders. Hear this. Do you know why he speaks in parables? So that outsiders stay out and insiders stay in. And you ask, how do you become an insider? Do you know what it takes to become an insider? relationship. Hear this. Nobody in this story figures out what Jesus means by the parables. Do you know how people come to understand what he means by the parables? The disciples say, Jesus, what do you mean by the parables? And do you know what Jesus does? He tells them. He's not trying to hide it. All that he's saying is, look, look, look. Anybody that wants to be an insider, anybody that wants to know what I really mean, what my heart is, anybody that wants to be realigned with my purposes on earth doesn't have to pass a test. All they have to do is come and inquire, consult, relationship. Nobody figures it out. And that's why we talk about the gospel is this gift. It is not something that you earn. It's not something that you were smart enough to know what to do with. It's that God in his grace saw fit to open up your ears and eyes, give you a new heart, so that when the gospel went forth, do you know what didn't choke it out, the cares and concerns of this life? When it went out, do you know what didn't take place? Satan didn't come across and snatch it. But, but one day, you were sitting 
and you heard it and that seed penetrated your heart and everything changed for you. Insiders, hear this, are those that immerse themselves fully in God's word and in God's world. That you can't fully understand this while being an outsider. This is why casual church attendance is great. We are glad that uh, if that's you, we're glad that you're here versus not being here. But you're never really going to understand what Christianity is like unless you jump in. It's kind of like trying to taste the meal by smelling it. It may be enjoyable, but it's not satisfying. It doesn't fill you. There's two kinds of medicines, at, at least. Topical ones, right? If you have a rash, you, you can just put it on the rash and it'll heal it up. Or something that you ingest when the problem goes deeper than just the surface. You have to ingest it and take it in. Christianity says you're lying, you're cheating, you're stealing. You're being overly concerned about what people think of you. Your inability to move past disappointment and Anger is not a behavior that you just need to rub on some good inspirational talks and fix. It's saying there's something much deeper. And the only way that we really experience the life change is if you and I jump in. The casual observer, hear this, will never experience the fullness that Jesus intended. Why? That's where the rest of these stories come in. Do you know why? Because the kingdom of God is nothing like you would expect. God's glory in this world is presently covered in grime. There's this concept in God's word, or there's this concept in theology that's called already and not yet. And all that that means is uh, God's kingdom and presence is here in the world in full force. But it's not all of what it will be. But just because it's not all of what it will be, it doesn't mean that it's not here. Looks can be deceiving. Look here at verse 31, and it says this. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven, hear this, is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable, saying the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leaven. As he's describing what the kingdom of God is, do you know what he's not using? Big, impressive displays of power. Do you know what he is using? Things that are very small. Things that are unimpressive. But things that have a huge impact. Things that have 
potential. Do you know why? Because that disappoints us. We want something to be what it should be fully. But if we'll sit with our disappointment and we won't get mad or we won't run away in apathy, what we'll do is we'll find out that it causes you and I to engage with Jesus. And we find the reason why he does things that way is so that you and I learn not to evaluate what goes on in the world based on what we perceive, but to evaluate what goes on in the world based on the promises of God. He's intentionally done things this way so that you, so that we are required to live lives of complete faith, total trust, that even if things don't look like what he says that they'll look like right now, we can be confident that they will be that. Even if things are small, as small as a mustard seed, the goal is that small doesn't mean that it won't be substantial or significant. Even if things don't look impressive, like leaven, God's kingdom mixed into the world has the capacity to infect everything that it touches. Jesus with 12 men that were not impressive by any stretch of the means changed a world. What that does for us is it reminds us, hear this. I am all for seeing God do the miraculous. I want God to blow our minds and give us signs and wonders that would change how we see him. But for the person that understands what God's kingdom is like, do you know what it does? It says that my excitement about the things of God aren't contingent on that. It says that I know how God does things, so I don't have to see the end product. All I have to see is the ingredients. Thanksgiving. All it takes for me to get excited. Some people have to see the full spread. All I have to see is Wednesday night, my wife walking through the door with these unimpressive Kroger bags with whole milk, because I know she doesn't really buy whole milk for anything else except to make mac and cheese, macaroni shells, different types of cheeses that I won't name lest you try to reproduce what you can't. Listen, when I see those ingredients in her hands, I get excited. <laughs> I don't have to wait for her to finish because I know that she's never let me down. I want y'all to hear this. I want you to hear this. Because as we go through the scriptures, so many of us find ourselves in here disappointed with what God is doing because we don't see the full spread, not realizing that the ingredients are there. Listen, this is the same God that does small things. With Abraham, God made a nation out of a man and his wife that couldn't have kids. God set a nation of 1.5 million people at least 
free from slavery from the most powerful army, not with an army, but with a man and a stick. God defeated a giant that nobody could take down, not with a bigger giant, but a stone. As you take an evaluation of what's going on in your life or what you have or how God's going to get the glory, why are you despising the small beginnings? Why are you overlooking the ingredients? If you really knew whose hands they were in, you would not have to wait for him to work to get Excited, he has never let us down. This is his M.O. And what that means is that we don't have to chase after bigger and better resources. We don't have to be discouraged by the small beginnings. When you see the potential of what God can do, hear this, um, you make the most out of every opportunity that's presented right in front of you. That you find out that your job is not just a job. Every interaction with a coworker is an opportunity for the kingdom of God to infect where you are. With your kids, I don't care how bad they are, every bedtime is not just a bedtime. It is a chance for you to see God's kingdom at work as it changes the life and trajectory of a person. Every great person that has ever had any impact on anybody else on any scale started off as a, as, as a child. That's how God does things. God made one world out of nothing and created all this big stuff. And then do you know what he does? He populates that world one person at a time. Small. Unnoticed doesn't mean insignificant. And our social media age has blinded us to this. We're constantly in search for trying to realize how important this one thing is that we'll do. And God's trying to say his kingdom isn't like that. It doesn't work on the same principles of greatness that our world does. It starts small. The glory of the kingdom is presently covered in grime. Jesus reveals the parables to the crowds. It's only to the committed. Those that say, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word and fully do what you've called me to do, that they even get insight to the way that the world works. The best part about all of this or what we see here in this text, hear this. Is not just the commitment that you and I are called to. The best part about all of this is not just the comprehension, the way that we finally understand how God works in this world. Do you know the best thing that we're called to? Is the celebration that comes that is only reserved for the committed. Here's what I mean by that. Often when we talk about obedience, what God has called us to do, we talk about it in terms of duty. This is what you should do, what you should do, what you should do. As Jesus is outlining 
the beauty of the kingdom and that it's nothing like what we'd expect because it's better than we can imagine, he talks about it not just in terms of duty, but delight. Here's what I mean. If you'll just think of You need to eat to live. Yes? But God created such a thing, a sweet potato casserole with the candied pecans on top. You need to drink to live. But God created a such thing as Chick-fil-A lemonade or adult beverages that are drunk responsibly? If the Lord and the creator of heaven has gone through so much work to make the physical necessities of life niceties, what makes you think that he hasn't done that much more with the spiritual necessities of life? What I love about this passage is the first part talks about the kingdom of God and the fact that only those that are fully committed really understand what he's trying to do. But look here at verse 44, and it says this. Look, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes out and sells everything that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. Back in this day, what somebody would do if they owned this field, they would bury treasure in the fields that, that, that they owned to keep it safe. They didn't have banks or storehouses. Every so often, uh, somebody would themselves be buried before they could uproot their buried treasure. So there's a picture of somebody that just works this, works this ground, stumbles over this treasure that nobody else knows is there. And so he goes to the person that owns that land and says, listen, see that piece of land that you have that nobody really wants? I will sell everything and I'll pay more than you would get appraised for this land, for this land. And the person who sells the land thinks he got over, but the person who buys it says, I just won. There's a show on A&E called Storage Wars where it was the same thing, right? It's these guys who find out that in Cali, um, you have three months for unpaid storage before they sell off your unit. There was this one guy who walks in, peers at what's inside, and knows um, that there is a storehouse of art by this guy named Frank Gutierrez worth $300,000. And so as they all bid, he pays $3,000 for it. Now, was $3,000 a lot of money? No. Listen, and you say no because you have inside information. If you didn't have that inside information, you would say $3,000 is a lot of money to pay for junk. 
But what he said is, no, no, wait, wait. There is this treasure. That even if I sold all of what I had, I couldn't afford it. But by selling all that I have and paying much more than people think that it's worth, I can attain it. And what Jesus is doing is he's comparing the kingdom of God to this. Hear this. Comprehension is not just reserved for the committed, but celebration is. As he talks about obedience, what he's saying is, look, the people that really get it, the people that have really seen what God has done, although they've given everything, what they'll say is that it's cost them nothing. Because it's worth it. Because they see the beauty of what's there in comparison to what they have. And hear this. If this is how you view the kingdom of God and what God has called you to do, and you give your all, you let go of all of your ambitions, your hopes, your dreams, your desire to please all of those folks that you thought would provide you the approval that you want to, if you let go of the direction of your life and start to make choices based on what you feel like that the Lord would want from you, I want you to know this. People will think that you're crazy. Outsiders will look at the sacrifices that you've made And they'll say, it doesn't make sense. Well, let me put it this way. If every decision that you make about your family, your career, business, relationships, if every decision makes sense to people who are not fully committed to the Lord Jesus... then that should cause you to wonder in terms of insider and outsider, which one am I? What I love about this text here is that it's both prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive in the sense in that it tells us what to do. In order to take hold of the promises of God, I want you to hear this. It's going to cost you Everything. If there is something, a relationship, a job, a decision, a grudge, something that you just feel like you can't let go, what your heart is saying is, I think that this is worth more than everything God has to offer. And the only way that we get there is if we trust our eyes more than we trust our ears, what God said. It's prescriptive in that it tells us what to do, but here's this. It's descriptive in that it tells us everybody that has done this comes out on the other side as a winner. And what I love is that we don't just have to take Matthew's word for it, but we see it in the lives of people. One thing that I love about this church is that I could look out on the at the crowd here, and look at all of the stories of people that have given it all up. There is one couple that that as I was reading and I was praying this week, I was incredibly grateful for. Um, 
and, and it was Breyer and Diana Calvert. Uh, for those of y'all that don't know their story, five years ago, me and Richard get an email from them as they found out about what God, had call, uh, or what God was trying to do with this church. And back when uh, this church was not a church, it was uh, me and Richard in an apartment. Um, they said, hey, we just want to meet and, and, and talk some. Well, they come down, and as they drive around the West End, a more depressed community back then than it was now, uh, one of the things that took place was they drove back, and in their heart, they just felt like, hey, we own this big house out in Woodstock. Things are fine. The running joke around the community was that it was this place called fake heaven. No crime, no trash on the streets, not streets of gold, but the streets were shiny. And what they did um, was they, they sold their house, they let go of their house. They bought a house right here in Westview, a little 1,200 square foot house. And they've stayed on the inside, and at the course of the past few years, there hasn't been any major revival that's broken out on their street. But just seeing the faithfulness of the Lord day to day to day, as they sit and talk, you sit down and talk with them, and they'll say, we gave up everything, but we really didn't give up anything. They talk about the joy, the peace, the anxiety, as opposed to the stress, the worry, and trouble, and I just bring them up as one of many stories of people that have done that. And you may sit here and say, John, that's great, that's inspiring, but I don't have all of that to to give up or to sell. And nor am I trying to advocate that that is the Christian thing to do. That if you have much that you have to sell it, and relocate. But what I am saying is, as Christians, as people who embrace God's kingdom, what you and I see is that regardless of what decisions that you make, what specific ones, there is a method or a way of decision-making that runs counter to the world that we live in. And you say, John, I want to get there, but I just, I, 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 I don't know if I can. I don't have the willpower. I don't know if I have the strength or the strategy. I don't know if I can let go. What I love about this text or what we see here um, is that there is nobody that is compelled into the kingdom merely by duty. Do you see what was here in the text? It wasn't that he was jolted to turn it to sell all he has or else he'll burn. It says that it was joy that moved him. The only way that we're changed is, hear this, for you and I to be compelled by something that's more beautiful. Desires aren't erased. They have to be uprooted and replaced by greater ones. 
And here's the beauty of what Christ does. Jesus doesn't just explain this truth. He talks about this counterway that the kingdom infects the world, but he goes a step further. And do you know what he does? He illustrates it with his life. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says this. Therefore, since we have are also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Hear this. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. What this says is the way that you and I are changed is not by being compelled into change by Christ. It's by staring at the Lord Jesus and celebrating what he's done. It's saying that this isn't just a man who tells parables. He's a man that becomes one. That we see that he comes into this world. Listen, God who is big and grand. And as he comes into this world to set us free, do you know how he doesn't come? He doesn't come with trumpets blaring and an entourage. He comes as a baby. And not just any baby, but a baby who's born to a poor family who can't even afford a hotel room. He's born amongst animals and filth. Not only is he born that way, but socioeconomically as he lives, he doesn't rise up above that very much. That throughout his life, with all of the great things that he did, all the folks that he healed, all the stuff that he taught, while he lived, he only had a regional influence that goes about as far north as it is from Houston to Dallas. In the world, that's how small his influence was while he taught, while he lived here in the world. But then do you know what? This man who was unknown, unheralded, not really big in the grand scheme of the world, he dies a criminal's death to where he doesn't become famous, he becomes infamous. Fifteen plus years ago, I went to college uh, in Waco, Texas. Listen, now you know Waco because of Chip and Joanna Gaines and right all the stuff that they do, fixer-upper. Back then, Waco was David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. People knew that place, not because of the great things that came from it, but the craziness that came from it. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, he experienced not fame, but infamy. Dying on a cross, becoming famous that way, is not the way to start a global religion that will influence folks. That's the way to quiet it down. But listen, that's how God does things. 
The kingdom of God is nothing like we'd expect because it's better than we can imagine in Jesus being God in the flesh coming to die for our sins. What takes place is that as he dies, not just that death, but that, je- that shameful death, he does it for the joy that was set before. He doesn't go kicking and screaming, but he sees what lies ahead. He sees that everybody else that is deserving of that same shame, torture, and anguish now can experience trading places with him. And it's in his resurrection and raising from the dead and proclaiming this truth that this symbol of the cross, this small seed that is insignificant, turns into the most powerful symbol when it comes to reuniting humans to their creator and humans to one another. And it's reserved for everybody that would acknowledge the disappointment that comes in the way that God does things here on earth, but would say, Lord, in the midst of the disappointment I feel, would you help me not to trust my eyes, but to trust my ears? We've talked a whole lot about commitment. Here's what it means to be committed to Jesus. It is a faith that seeks understanding and not an understanding that seeks faith. An understanding that seeks faith says this. I'm going to stay on the outside. I'm I'm just going to engage. I'm going to step my foot in that water but I'm really going to just stay on the outside and observe. I'll casually come and go. I'll consider what it may look like to make every decision through the lens of the gospel. I'll, 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 I'll just kind of stay on the outside and do the bare minimum until I'm fully convinced, and then I'll jump in. What faith-seeking understanding says is this. Jesus has more than proven himself, not just in the fact that God created the the world, but in the great lengths that Jesus has gone through to redeem the world and to raise from the dead. So here's what I'll do. I'll commit to give my life to him. And what that means is that he has my faith. And after I jump headfirst into that pool, when things don't make sense, I'm going to be committed and show that I'm committed by consulting him until they do make sense. God, I don't know why you would call me to do this. I'm going to do it. But I'm going to ask you why. Why? Why? Why would you say it this way? Why would you do it like this? And I'm not going to try to make sense of life outside of this. I'm going to use this to make sense of life. And I think that if we do that, if we commit ourselves to him, what we'll do is we'll move past the disappointments that come through life into this trust, into this ability to filter everything that God does through the lens, not of our perception, but his promises. God's kingdom is nothing like you'd expect because it's better than you could ever hope for. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would convince us of this truth. Help us to be those that give our lives fully and totally and completely to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.